Thank you, Todd. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Have a great time. Thank you to those of you who are faithfully helping lead them. They are part of a three-year curriculum that walks the kids through the whole biblical story. So we're grateful for the work that's happening there. Um, Everybody else, today, if you would turn with me to Proverbs, that's where we're going to be again. Proverbs 18 will be where we start this morning. Proverbs 18. Uh, We're starting a new series today called uh, Social Currency. We're going to spend the next, Lord willing, five weeks looking at uh, what are specific things the book of Proverbs teaches about our most important and most common relationships. So these last five weeks we'll spend together in Proverbs, we'll look specifically at a variety of relationships, and this will be immensely hands-on, practical. You'll be able to walk away and immediately do something, I think, with these messages. Uh, Maybe this is a natural time to tell you uh, where I think we'll be headed for the next coming months as we finish up this series. Uh, We will be moving into uh, Psalms. We're going to spend the summer walking through um, eight or nine different psalms, a different one each week. And then after that, Brian Jerry, one of our residents, is going to take um, four weeks and go through Colossians. So that's a great little book full of wisdom. Brian's done a lot of work in that, so we're looking forward to that, brother. And then um, in the fall, we're planning to start um, when back to school happens uh, in Philippians and spend the majority of the fall going through Uh, kind of passage by passage through that book. So if you don't have a regular routine, a Bible reading plan you're a part of, that would give you some things to begin thinking about, reading. So Psalms, and then you can move to Colossians and Philippians. Uh, It's often very helpful if you are yourself taking initiative to read the Scriptures, perhaps with a friend or two, and then as we preach through it, it can reinforce the things you're already learning. So Lord willing, that's where we're headed. But uh, perhaps you're here with us today for the first time. Welcome. Uh, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors. And the uh, centerpiece of our time together is gathering around the scriptures to hear what God would say to us. We're, we've been talking about wisdom um, all year. Do you feel like you're growing in wisdom? Uh, I hope so. Uh, I am sure being stretched and um, pushed. Wisdom is different than uh, simply having knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and apply it in the nuts and bolts of everyday life. It's the practical skill for living life, particularly the skill to live life in those areas in which the clear rules of the Bible don't delineate, do this or do that, which, by the way, is the majority of life. The majority of life is those gray, quote-unquote, issues in which you've got to decide how does the principles of God's Word apply in this situation to which the Bible doesn't give me a direct answer. So say, for example, uh, you have an aging parent and you've got to decide, what do I do with this parent? The Scripture says, honor your father and mother regardless of how old you are or they are. But honoring your parent at eight and honoring your parent when you're 50 and they're 80 are two different things, right? So 
Uh, my mom recently had to work through that process with her mom, who has Alzheimer's, and she reached the point of being no longer able to stay by herself. So should she go to a private home where there is care? Should she go to a nursing home? Should she move her in with them, which would require a multi-state move, which is not good for someone with Alzheimer's? The Bible doesn't answer that question. It says, honor your father and your mother. And so wisdom says, through counsel and through prayer, through guidance from the Holy Spirit, through sanctified common sense, a decision has to be made. Does that make sense? So the book of Proverbs is a guide book to help us understand how to make those kind of decisions. Today we're going to talk about friendship. Did you know the Bible talks about friendship? Have you ever heard a sermon on friendship? My guess is the majority of us would say no. I'm not sure I have. And so today I'm looking forward to walking through this with you as we consider what friendship is. By way of introduction, let's look at Proverbs 18, verse 24. And remember, the majority of this book was written um, a, a father to a son. And so the language in it is a masculine for the most part. That's not because, uh, ladies, God does not want to speak to you. It's because it was originally a father speaking to a son. This verse certainly would fit there. So 18.24, a man or woman of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The teaching of Proverbs is that friends may be better than family. Now, don't elbow the person sitting next to you. It's not going to be helpful. That's shocking to hear, isn't it? Friends may be better than family. That's surprising to us, but imagine being a Hebrew in a very family-oriented culture. It would have been even more surprising to them. Friendship doesn't get the press today that other relationships do. The two kinds of relationships we're constantly talking about is one romantic or simply sexual, and the other is family. We very infrequently would give any emphasis at all to friendship. But friendship, the scripture says, says, may be better than family. That sounds absolutely nuts. Why would the author of Proverbs say that? Well, here's two reasons you might think about. One, a singular friend may be better than an entire family because friends stick with you not just in crisis, but all the time. That seems to be part of the point that he's making. That as a grown person, I have two brothers. Um, one of them um, is in Oklahoma, another is here in Arizona. One of them I only hear from if there's a crisis. Only. We're not acrimonious, there's no big fight, there's not dissension, but he calls if he needs something. That's the only time I ever hear from him. A friend wouldn't do that. That's part of what this proverb is saying. Another reason, perhaps, is friends choose each other, family you're born into. 
That's just the fact of how it works. Friends choose each other, but family you're born into. Now, before we look at some more proverbs, can you feel how much tension entered the room already? God, we need your wisdom in our friendships. We ask that you'd help us that through your power, you would lower our guards, that we might receive your word and leave ready to repent where we have not been good friends, ready to seek people out where we've been selfish, ready to just enjoy the gift of friendship where we haven't treasured it. We pray you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. It seems to me that friendship has fallen on hard times. A couple lines of evidence, pieces of evidence, if we could talk through those. The most basic principle that a parent wants to impart to their children, especially upper grade school, into middle school, and then definitively into high school, is neglected by those of us who are adults. That most basic principle is this. You will become like the people you are friends with. Why do we spend so much energy convincing our kids of that and none thinking about that as adults? That's kind of dumb. The advice we give to our children is good advice. We ought to heed it ourselves. You will become like the people you choose to be friends with. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. Perhaps one reason friends, friendship has fallen on hard times is that we've neglected that most basic of principles. Another reason is uh, what I would call autonomy idolatry. I'm sure you woke up this morning and thought, I'm going to think about autonomy idolatry today. Here's what that means. The deepest cultural value in Tempe, Arizona is I am the autonomous self. I do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, and you just keep your nose out of it. And that permeates even the church. Not everywhere in the world is that way. Not everywhere in the country is that way. But that is the deepest cultural value in Tempe, Arizona. It took me years to understand why are people so disconnected here? And that's why. It's because that's what we tend to treasure and value the most. Almost all of us are from somewhere else. Almost all of us won't be here in a few years. Almost all of us treasure the rugged individualism of the Wild West. That's what brought many of us here. Right? So think of how that impacts relationships. If what I most value is myself, not community, then that's going to mean I only let relationships so, so close. In fact, our most prized possession may be the button on the garage door because it means I don't even have to actually go outside. Now, in the middle of summer, we can understand that. 
But what if you took a lawn chair and sat outside your apartment or in your driveway in the evening and talked to people? You might get the neighbors calling the police saying there's a stalker outside, but it might be helpful to friendships. Personal autonomy destroys true friendship. Friendships cannot thrive in a context of selfishness. And Tempe, Arizona is full of selfish people. Now, we could look at that in the negative, but we could also look at it in the positive. That means one of the most powerful building blocks that we have for sharing the gospel is something as simple as friendship. Friendship. Let me make a bold statement. The less you want friends, the less you are like God. Why would I say that? God has existed for all time in the best friendship there's ever been. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are a community. God within himself for all time, pre-time, has been a God of friendship. A God in which the Father gives deference to the Son, the Son gives deference to the Spirit, the Spirit gives deference to the Father. There's a mutuality of love and self-sacrifice in pointing to each other's good that has always been. That's mysterious, but it's also immensely practical. Because God says that we human beings, as Todd prayed, are people made in the image of God. Part of what that means is that we're made as people to be in community, to be in relationship, to have friendship. And so if your attitude is, I don't want or need anybody else, uh, there's a a song that says, um, we have all we need in you, all we need in you, all we need in you. Do you want me to sing it? No? All right. I won't. That's not actually true. You don't have all you need in God. God has made you and he's made me to have need for companionship, for relationship with each other. And so to the extent that we don't want that, then we don't want Christ-likeness. God has made you, friend, to mirror him. And part of that means, warts and all, that we pursue friendship with each other. Another reason why friendship seems to have fallen on hard times is that we live in a transient society. Americans have largely become nomadic people. We roam, constantly looking for the next place to satisfy what the last place didn't. One result of this transient nature of society is that we experience what sociologists call a crowded loneliness. People everywhere, but no one really knows us. Listen to this quote. Speaking of New York City, New York is a splendid desert, a domed and steepled solitude, where a stranger is lonely in the midst of a million of his race. Have you felt that? Now, we're in the real desert. 
and we're in a desert of relationships. That sounds like it could very much be written today about Tempe, Arizona. It was actually written by Mark Twain in 1867. Imagine what he would say today. Many people have many, many acquaintances, but few genuine friends. Why? One reason for that is friendship takes time. It takes time. And if you're constantly moving, then there is no time to develop deep roots in relationship. A few of you in here might have a green thumb. If you buy a plant, chances are you're going to have to repot it. So you're going to have to take it out of its pot and either put it in a larger pot or stick it in the ground. You with me? So if you repot a plant once and you take care of it, chances are it's going to be fine. But if you repot a plant over and over and over and over and over and over, what's most likely going to happen to that plant? It's going to die. Friends, it is almost impossible as people living in the United States to not be repotted a few times. You're likely going to have schooling, a marriage, uh, a need with a child, a job that's going to require you to repot yourself. But what would it be like to think, I want to try to reach a point of not being repotted anymore? I want to stay put for the purpose of friendship, for the purpose of relationship. You'll end up with more friends if you do that. A lifetime of repotting does not make for healthy people. Now maybe uh, perhaps a, a final reason why relationships, friendships have fallen on hard times is that some of us think it's weak and immature to need friends. There can be this macho thing, especially among men, that think I'm fine on my own. You are only fine on your own to the extent that you're fine in and of yourself. And you are not fine in and of yourself. We need each other. We need friendships. Now, despite friendship falling on hard times, it remains an issue of tremendous importance. So the primary thing I'd love to do with you this morning is to give you four ingredients in great friendships. And these are straight out of the Proverbs. Four ingredients in great friendships. And to my great disdain, they all start with C. Hopefully that will help you to remember them. First is commitment. Commitment. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves when it's convenient, and a brother is born for adversity. No. A friend loves, how often? At all times. If you're going to have constancy in friendship, then you've got to get really good at choosing, forgiving, and keeping relationships, which is the essence of commitment in a friendship. You've got to get really good at choosing the right kinds of people 
to be friends with. And then forgiving them when they fail you. And then keeping those relationships. That's what constancy or commitment in a friendship looks like. I didn't know this until doing some research last week, but there's a famous essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson about friendship. It's one of the most widely things written about friendship. Probably all of you knew that, and I didn't. He says this, I do not wish to treat friendships daintily, but with roughest courage. When they are real, they are not glass threads or frost work, but the solidest thing we know. Do you have even one friendship that you would say, that is one of the solidest things I know? I can count on him or her. They are committed to my good. Even one. I assume many of us would say no. May that be different after we look in these Proverbs together. The Proverbs doesn't say a friend loves when it's convenient. A friend loves when there's nothing better to do. A friend loves when you love back. It says a friend, a real friend, loves at all times. What would it be like or what would it take from you to be that kind of friend? To be that kind of friend beyond your immediate family. One of the weird things that's happened in modern American church is as the broader culture of family has fallen apart, inside the church we've made an idol out of family. Your life is not ultimately about your family. Your life is about the kingdom of God. Part of the kingdom of God, if you're married or if you have kids, is your family. But you will not spend eternity being a husband or a wife, or a father or a mother. You will spend eternity being a child of God. And we hurt friendship when we huddle up with only our nuclear family and watch TV. We hurt friendship when we put family so far above even Christ that, that doesn't honor the family. It doesn't honor Christ. I'm not saying don't be committed to your spouse. But I'm saying don't hide in your house to the detriment of other Christians and non-Christians. That isn't God's design. That isn't what he gave you when he gave you a spouse or child. Those people that God has given you, he's given you for your holiness, that you might be even more effective as a Christian I say that not to offend, and I'm sure I will get some emails and maybe a pipe bomb or two. But I believe that's what the scriptures would tell us. A core element of friendship is emotional connectivity. Now, dudes, if I haven't lost you already, I just did. Here's what that means. When you have a friendship that's a deep, lasting meaningful friendship. Part of what makes it that is that when you're hurt, when something's upsetting, and you go and you talk to that friend about this, 
then that friend isn't happy while you're hurting. That friend hurts. And when you go to that friend and you're happy, you got accepted into that grad school, you got pregnant on purpose, (laughs) then they're happy with you because you're happy, right? That's emotional connectivity. Friends feel for each other, with each other. It's crucial to friendship. Another crucial thing in a committed friendship is availability. If you are never available for a friend, you won't stay friends. There's got to be sacrifice of time and money for that relationship. And in the end, I don't believe that's really sacrifice. Because you're likely giving up something else that's less valuable in order to invest in a relationship. That's not the definition of what sacrifice is. There is a friend who loves at all times. Find him or her. Seek him or her out. Be that kind of friend. My wife has several friends from grade school. That is really weird. I have a few enemies left. They're called teachers, but no friends, not a single one. I moved every two or three years. I have zero friends, even from high school. Part of that was I was um, morbidly self-absorbed. Jill has these relationships with women, one of whom called her a couple of days before the national football game that was here in town, the college championship, and said, hey, can I come and I'll buy you a ticket? Can I stay with you? Jill doesn't care anything about football, but she cares about this friend. So this friend who had graduated from the school that was here came. They had a great time together. I wish I had that. I'm trying to make up for it. Those of you kids who are younger, that's a gift of God. All right, I gotta go on and you're not gonna be my friends because we will be here all day. A second C, and this one's more difficult, is candor. You cannot have friendship, genuine friendship, without candor. Proverbs 27, 5, says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Far more famous proverb, Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens another. Friends, true Friends tell each other the truth in love. They give when it's needed. Understand that qualifier. This isn't every conversation. But when it's needed, they give each other faithful wounds. Now, what is that? Well, there's a difference between words that hurt and words that harm. And we're not people that genuinely often understand the difference. Let me see if I can explain that briefly. Hurtful words are things you need to hear, but you don't want to. 
Harmful words are things you don't need to hear because they're only damaging. There's a difference. Friends understand that when things are not being done in a way that honors God, then it might hurt you for me to say that. But you need it. It's a gift. It's a treasure. It's part of what friendship is for. But the fact that you talk with your mouth open while you eat, or you, you kind of stink, or you're a little abrasive, or you have a tendency to burn the mac and cheese. Mostly what happens is we tend to point out harmful things because those are things that just kind of grate on our, our personalities. And then the issues that really matter, we don't touch. Imagine turning that on its head. I'm going to try in Christ to ignore everything that is merely personality-driven. And I'm going to pray for wisdom and timing to point out everything that seems like it's genuinely hurting your walk with Christ. That's the stuff of friendship, right? You gotta have candor. Faithful wounds are a gift of God through the lips of a friend. Several weeks ago, we looked at Proverbs 24, 26 that says, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. And just by way of reminder, here's what I meant. So, um, you don't try to apply that in a weird way. That just means that if you're talking to a friend and you give them a straight answer, and you're not mean or cruel, you don't say this behind their back, you speak it to them, then you're treating them as a peer. You're, You're kissing them on the lips. You're treating them as you would want to be treated. You're treating them not belittling them and not kissing up to, but they're peers. It's immensely practical, isn't it? If you or I are in a friendship and you notice something I'm doing that's harmful, but you refuse to say something to me about it because you're afraid of how I will react, you're not really a friend. You're loving yourself more than me. That's not what friends do. Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Now, let me just say very clearly, all of this assumes that what we're talking to each other frankly about isn't personal opinion. It isn't pet peeves. It isn't things you do that just grate me the wrong way. It's things that God would put in the category of wrong, detrimental, destructive. So the candor is about those things that help us 
grow closer to Christ. Some of you are reading through the three-year Bible plan we gave out in December, and it's been fun and encouraging to hear that from you. At home, Jill and I are doing that with our children, and we're in Job right now. Some of you are also in Job. Uh, the friends, quote-unquote, friends in Job are, are not real friends. They are guys that huddled around Job and beat up on him, and they didn't really know what they were talking about. They didn't encourage him. They were wrong in their assessment of him. That's not the candor that we are aiming for. Galatians 6 tells us how to do it. It says, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. And why should you restore him in a spirit of gentleness? It's not mainly because that's the way it's most likely to be received, although that's true. It's rather, if I come to you confrontationally, pridefully, arrogantly, then I'm likely setting myself up to fall into the same exact sin. Because I will be practicing candor with you thinking I'm above it. And no one is above anything. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Proverbs tells us a, a second key ingredient to friendship is candor. Third is counsel. Proverbs 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Friends have got to be people who are all up in each other's business. Enough so that we would know this person needs counsel on this issue. And it's not weird, out of place, offensive for me to say, hey, I've been praying for you. Can I encourage you to maybe consider this as a possible way to pursue this issue? That's the normal stuff of friendship. If you've been friends with somebody a long time and he or she has never given you any counsel about anything, that friendship is not worth the time you're investing in it. Does your counsel, when you give it, come off as sweetness? Does it taste like chocolate? Or is it like a Sour Patch Kid? Now, friends, understand it takes time to develop that kind of relationship. It takes time. It does not happen quickly. But are you pursuing that even as a part of life? A couple of friends who are people that exhibit commitment and candor and counsel. Now, if you want that kind of friendship, then understand it takes time. And understand it takes from you the commitment to love all the time. You've got to have sacrifice for the good of others. 
You got to think I'm going to stick closer to this person than even family? Now, frankly, how does that sound? Not rhetorical. How does that sound? Sounds fantastic, someone said. How else does that sound? What? Comfortable? Uncomfortable. Trying to throw in another C, huh? Uncomfortable? I think it sounds impossible. I have never been a friend to someone to such a degree that I've exhibited those three C's all the time. Nor have I ever received that level of friendship perfectly. Not only does it sound impossible, it is impossible. Because if you get one person and another person pursuing friendship, what do you have? You have sin compounding sin because you have two people. So Proverbs is calling us to something that you cannot do. That's why we so need the fourth C, Christ. Christ. The only way to be a true friend of people is to be a friend of God. We were friends with the world and thus enemies of God, but Christ's death served as the reconciliation of us back into a friendship with God. That's part of what salvation is. Ray Ortland puts it this way, God is befriending us, including us, drawing more and more people in. Friendship began in heaven, not on earth, and is coming down to earth through the gospel today. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus said that he is our friend. That is shocking. Because we have not exhibited those traits of friendship with Jesus, and yet Jesus perfectly exhibits them towards us. That's called grace. That's what the church is built in. John 15 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master's doing. But I call you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Brothers and sisters, if you want to have friends like this, then focus on being this kind of friend, which means focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God in the gospel can make you his friend. That's scandalous that I exhibit none of these traits towards God, and yet Christ pursued me, died for me, in order to put me into a friendship with God. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, you've never given your life to God, then fundamentally what being a Christian means is I believe that Jesus came to do that. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death for his friends, we just read. 
rose again, which we celebrated last week, and every Sunday, in order that God would welcome us into Trinity-level friendship with God. If God has done that, is it too much that we would pursue that with each other? Friends, it's the resource through which friendship with one another can happen. Now, what are some practical steps to put this together? We've got a few more minutes. Would you humor me a couple more minutes? This has been one of the most tense, uncomfortable times I ever remember this room being. Why? I think it's because God's convicting us. I can remember, especially as a a young man in my early 20s, so badly wanting a couple of friends and trying and trying and trying and trying as an imperfect, young, immature believer and finding, frankly, man after man after man that just wanted to sit in his underwear and play video games. Didn't want to grow up. And I want to call out, especially the men. Men, grow up. It is not macho, cool, tough, big to live ruggedly independent. It's foolish. Now as an old man, I turned 40 this year. It fits. I'm more like 80 physically, so it really fits. In a wonderful church family, I have more friends than I can keep up with. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to pursue friendship? Here's a few suggestions, and I'll have to do them quick. One, understand your church membership as an endless pool for friendship. Now, we can be a great church family and everyone not have exactly the same level of friendship with each other. You can't have Regardless of what Facebook tells you, you cannot have 500 friends. You can't. You can have 500 acquaintances, but really you can only have a few really tight friendships. And so what if we thought of our membership commitment as to all of us, but we looked in particular for our closest friendships to be some of the people who call this their church home. And if we all did that and all pursued that, we would all have close friendships. There's that many of us. Hands down, the best relationships I have are in this church. Not because I'm the great friend here, because you're that great. You're great men and women in Christ. We don't have time to read it, but you were given, uh, when you came in, this sheet that says membership commitment at it on top. 
Read through it. That is the commitment we make to each other as members. And it is the stuff of friendship. I gotta go on. Second, I wanna encourage you to get into a gospel community and help build a church-wide culture of discipleship. What does that mean? GCs exist in part for friendship. To pool together a smaller group of people who are not primarily together because they're in the same station in life. They're not all single. They're not all young marrieds. They're not all um, seasoned. (laughs) They're together mainly geographically or because they've gathered around a particular mission together. That means they're diverse. That means they don't look alike, smell alike, think alike, and that's the stuff of great friendship. Get in a gospel community. And in addition to that, take on a posture of Titus 2. Titus 2 says, men, disciple, mentor, men. Older men, younger men. And it doesn't define those ages. So at 39, I ought to be consciously looking for people younger than me to invest in and people older than me. And guess what? Um, You can do that regardless of how old you are. Women, same thing. That's the normative stuff of church life. Not optional. Not for the Jesus freaks. Not for those who happen to take spirituality really, really serious and you're kind of weird. If you think of yourself as a Christian and you won't do Titus 2, then in love I would say to you, I don't know what you mean when you say, I'm a Christian. Because that's what Christians do. We have been rescued by God. Now we're investing in each other. That's Christianity. So help build a culture of discipleship. That's not best done with all church women's teas and men's retreats. It's best done as every person takes individual responsibility to say, I'm going to look for someone to help me along and I'm going to help somebody else along. And if even half of us did that, it would cover everyone. That's church. That's why we have so few big programs around here. Because if you actually do that, the actual stuff of the Bible, it's going to take up most of your life. You're not going to have time for lots of women's teas and men's retreats because you're going to be too busy doing the work of the church. I'm an equal opportunity offender today, I'm afraid. For time's sake, let me go to the last one. Remember that friendship begets friendship. Do you want to have friends? Frankly, I spent from sixth grade to about 11th grade 
bemoaning the fact I didn't have friends. I don't think it occurred to me a single time, you're really stupid. Why don't you say, I'm going to be a friend? I don't think a single time. You will end up with more friends than you possibly can keep up with if you focus on being a friend. And how do you do that? You become a friend of God, and then you nurture that friendship by abiding in Christ. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. The more you do that, the less selfish you are, the more grace from God you'll be drinking in, the more rich and joyful your life will be. That is God's design. And isn't it a great one? Would you pray with me? Father, I certainly didn't expect this to be as confrontational as it has been. And yet we trust you that as we gather together and we open your scriptures, that your spirit is here, that these are the very words of Christ, what we read in the Bible, and that your word pierces us down to the very heart, bone and marrow. And so we trust that what has happened today has been of you. And I pray if I have said something um, needlessly, unhelpfully, sinfully, that it would simply fall away. That my friends, my brothers and sisters would come and tell me. And that everything else, God, that we would, we would cling to it. I pray as we take just a couple more minutes to make an important announcement, we joyfully give, and then we leave, that we would do some heart work today. That we think about commitment, we think about candor. Most importantly, that we think about Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.